Want to learn what sets LiveFlow apart from thousands of other QuickBooks Online apps? Do you want to learn how LiveFlow saves time for hundreds of accountants and bookkeepers? Want to learn how LiveFlow helps accountants and bookkeepers to use LiveFlow successfully in their firm? Stay tuned to hear more from our sponsor, LiveFlow, later in the episode. Hunter Biden, you wanted to know where did this income come from? What was the source of it? Let's see, in 2017, he made $2.3 million. $1 million came from a company he formed with the chief executive officer of a Chinese conglomerate. $664,000 from a Chinese infrastructure investment firm. $500,000 from a Ukrainian energy company. We're in 70, the business, man. <laughs> $70,000 from a Romanian business. $48,000 from an international law firm. And $666,000 from domestic business interests. Coming to you weekly from the OnPay Recording Studio. Hello, and welcome to the show. I'm Blake Oliver. And I'm David Leary. But I saw last night you were at your the Meet the Teachers night. I kind of did the same thing. Like, are we finally done with kids at home? <laughs> Actually, I skipped Meet the Teacher night. I got to oh. be honest. I, I went to see Oppenheimer in IMAX 70 millimeter over in uh, down in Tempe. Sounds like a better choice. I actually went and I had to do the, I had to go to seven different classrooms and five minute breaks because, you know, Jameson's now young as a freshman. But what was interesting about that tie back to the show is teachers are now, there's these apps and these websites when they turn in papers, they have to push it through some website. I don't know, making up the domain, but it's like turn it in or something. And then that scans for AI usage in their papers. Like that's a big oh. concern this year is so using AI in school. Every paper they turn in, they have to submit on a portal that will scan it for did they for use some ChatGPT? classes yeah some classes there's concerns about this i thought there were questions as to whether these scanning tools are like accurate like do they really detect ai can they all the time i think these have existed in the past right like when you and i are in college like people could well not maybe you well, you're a little younger where they that was for, scan plagiarism. for plagiarism exactly yeah. no, right so they when i was in college we the, all the professors had a plagiarism detector and they would run all the papers through that and it would look for you know, has this paper been previously submitted? Is it online? All that stuff. But this is saying it can detect even if the paper's new, whether there's AI in it or has been used to generate it. Yeah, or I think it's, I, I don't know how these would work, but I, I guess if I'm a professor or a teacher, you probably could smell it. Like if all 30 students all used ChatGPT to write a paper on the topic you assigned them, I bet you there's a lot of very similar phrases popping up. Oh, yeah, sentences. yeah. And that's probably the way you could figure it out. But I think on a one-off, it probably can't. Mm-hmm. That's my guess. Because the, it just it just rambles, right? The, yeah. the, you don't know if it's really like that well, ChatGPT did I, it. My feeling is that we should be encouraging these students to use AI to write their papers because that's what they're going to be doing in the real world. Very soon, I mean, I'm doing it right now, I'm already writing articles, I'm writing social media posts, I'm writing emails with AI. We use it. We use I it. use it, yeah. So these students should be learning to use it. It's just like that story you brought up about the calculators in 1983 and how teachers were, math teachers were saying that students shouldn't be able to use calculators. And look where we're at, right? So, you know, it's interesting you brought that up because I saw a story in on Reuters about how Arizona State is now allowing prospective students at the law school to use generative artificial intelligence to draft their applications. But they have to certify their use of generative AI and the truthfulness of the information submitted. So instead of you filling out, this is the application to apply for law school? Mm -hmm. So, (laughs) because we know people are going to do this, right? When you write your essay for for law school or for whatever, you're going to use AI and... You know, they can say, oh, you can't use it, but people are going to use it. So, so basically so, what they're doing is they're making people say what I'm turning in is correct. And so yeah. that, that makes sense from an application process because if you have ChatGPT write up something, you don't check it before you turn it in, you're an idiot and they probably shouldn't let you come in, right? Like, exactly. Like, like if you're not reviewing the work before you turn that in, especially something that in theory, like an application like that is somewhat important, right? Yeah. Having it write a description for a podcast episode is a little less you know, less important. But I think when you're, yeah. So I got more AI news, David. There was a story in accounting today and the headline is leaders are split on whether AI will reduce or expand headcount. 
This is a KPMG survey of 200 business decision makers. And they found that opinions are divided on the impact of AI models on overall headcount. Just over half, 53%, believe that generative AI will increase headcount, while 40% believe it will reduce headcount. The most common new roles expected to be created by generative AI are specialists in generative AI, data scientists, new senior management, tech workers, specialists in safety and ethics, and business development and marketing professionals. On the other hand, those who expect a reduction in headcount anticipate a decrease in process and task-oriented slash administrative workers. Lack of skilled talent is seen as a major barrier to implementation. But despite all these concerns that they have, four out of five leaders believe that generative AI will have a more positive than negative impact on workers. And 80% of them anticipate an increase in investment in generative AI. So, for example, you said this is KPMG? KPMG did this survey of 200 business decision makers. All right. So they're basically saying AI is going to create a bunch of new jobs over here, but take away a lot. And so I'm trying to relate this back. I think EY has a building down here in downtown Tucson, and I think it's full of admins for partners all over the world, maybe, possibly. I have no idea. And so in theory, those jobs would all go away. But probably the headcount would probably be the same if they're going to have to hire over here. Yeah. I I, I don't think jobs are going to go away at all. Uh, like net due to AI. It's going to be like when the spreadsheet was invented and we're going to have more accounting jobs, more finance jobs as a result of it. Because I remember QuickBooks was going to get rid of all these accounts. <laughs> Planet Money did this great story on the history of the spreadsheet uh, this summer. And basically when when the electronic spreadsheet was invented, all these people whose jobs was to you know foot and calculate and update manual spreadsheets, those jobs went away. But then the cost of doing financial analysis dropped. It plummeted. And what happens when prices drop? People buy more. That's economics. Yeah. So the price of accounting, the price of audits should drop, which is interesting because I just saw a story about how the price of audits has more than doubled over the last 20 years. In fact, uh, if well, if you don't account for inflation, they've tripled. But then if you adjust for inflation, they've doubled. Yep. Yeah. So get this. The average audit fees paid by SEC registrants have more than tripled over the past 20 years. From 2003 to 2022, average audit fees rose from 681,000 to 200 Sorry, not 200, 2,243,000. $2, yeah. So that's interesting because the number of reporting companies, public companies that need to get audited, decreased from about 10,000 to 7,000 during the same time. Big four accounting firms accounted for 92% of all audit fees paid in 2022. 92%, the big four, 92% of all audit fees, with PwC leading in both total and average audit fees. Total audit fees paid by U.S. companies in 2022 rose to $12 billion. So there's less total audits. They're charging more for them. They're using arguably less labor right now. If anything, the labor, what you're paying for your labor to do these audits is nowhere close to what it used to. Like, it, that hasn't increased at all. That's the question. Is like we've, we've seen audit fees, when you adjust for inflation, audit fees have doubled or more. But starting salaries have been stagnant for 20 yeah, years. Yeah, we talked about that. We've seen those graphs. They don't move at all. Yeah. So, so now, like, let's think about this. Audit fees have gone up due to complexity. Starting salaries have not really increased. I guess... I guess they've just added, you know, the question is, how, how have they done this? Have they added more people? Are they just working them harder? Or is quality dropping? Like why, we talked last week about how audit quality has dropped. The PCOB says 40% of audits are deficient. So do we really have a situation where audit fees have more than doubled, audit quality is dropping, and starting salaries have stayed the same? And if that's the case, that kind of makes sense, doesn't it? Yeah, and I guess like it's like one of those. Usually, if something has lower quality over time, the price goes down. <laughs> like, like it, it, it's. I feel like we have a, you know, uh, like behavioral economists. Economists will talk about like these things. I don't know what it would be called, but we, for lack of better words, it's a dilemma. Right? This doesn't. It's unexplainable. Yeah, I don't understand. It breaks all market forces. If you're listening and you know why this is happening, I really want to know. Prices go up and quality goes down. 
and and the salaries of the workers stay the same. Like, what's the relationship here? Yeah, I seriously doubt Ford could pump out automobiles for, with a 40% failure rate and somehow increase the revenue through the roof. It just it well, can't happen. Unless maybe if nobody was driving the cars, and in the case of audits, nobody's reading the audit opinions, right? So it doesn't matter. The cars are paid and, for. They're just sitting there broken, not working, and nobody actually cares because nobody actually right. uses the cars. And here's an industry that made $12 billion in the U.S. in uh, last year and only paid $10 million in fines. $12 billion in fees, $10 million in fines. And the PCOB, while they shame the, the firms for having this deficiency rate, all the firms have a pretty high deficiency rate. And like you said, they don't they don't expose which clients got bad audits. So there's no penalty in terms of reputation or in terms of like anything, really, money, reputation, that's going to improve the situation. Do the clients themselves even know if they got a bad audit? Do, are they even informed? The clients? I don't yeah. know. I think it's all, it's all uh, secret. PCOB doesn't release the results of the individual audit inspections. You said the average fee is now, what, $2 million? What did it say? Yeah, it was like Two million, over two million dollars for a typical imagine, like, public company audit. A public company, some CEO somewhere, somebody's going to be like, "Wait a minute! I paid two, two and a half million dollars for them to not do a decent audit, or they screwed it up." Or maybe nobody cares because stock prices just keep going up. I don't know. It's yeah, I don't know. It, it, it's just it's it's completely upside down and broken in a weird. The, the numbers yeah. and ratios don't make sense. <laughs> it's a, it. It really does feel like a broken system when you look at the numbers like this but yeah, again so, you know like I, I we're outsiders looking in i would love to hear from those in the big four i mean i know you can't reveal your identities but you could contact us anonymously we are what's our new email address i think it's the accounting podcast at earmark.me the accounting podcast at earmark.me send us your intel let us know what you think Hey, maybe you're a retired partner who has no stake anymore and you can finally tell the truth. Let's hear about it. And maybe we're wrong. Maybe everything's fine. I just, I can't, I don't know. It feels like it just, it's the opposite of all market forces. If anybody, maybe, I don't know, airlines kind of get away with that though. They somehow have the worst customer service ratings and they somehow always manage to keep increasing revenue. So, oh, but so there's market this is a forces business model we don't there. understand. We don't understand this market. Yeah, maybe not. I understand very little. All right, what do you got, David? So, I don't know. Do you want to kind of stay in the, well, we could talk AI, we could talk, I think there's yeah. a work article. I think there's an article about hiring staff, and that kind of ties to both. So Okay. Let, we haven't talked about remote work in a while. Let's right. do that. So, the headlines is, so I heard it on, the first place I heard it was an NPR podcast. They talked about remote work. And uh, then there's uh, another article that was on Forbes, and the headlines are very, grabbing. Working from home leads to decreased productivity, research reveals. And so there was this paper um, conducted by, uh, it's, it's a working paper conducted by Stanford's Institute for Economic Policy and Research. And it really pulls together lots of different studies and pulls this data together. But I still feel like it's very, it's hit and miss, I guess. And it's all depending on who you're looking at and when. So, so I so I saw these headlines, right? Basically, yeah. the, the summary is like remote work may not be as productive as we thought. Correct. And what? So there was one study that I saw that was like of Indian call center workers. Is that the same one that's so used was, for all these headlines? There was two. It looks like there was two studies, but yes, the one was the main one was this call center study, and they figured out that f the fully working remote appears to lower average productivity by ten to twenty percent. And so they had data from a Fortune 500 firm that had both in-person and remote call centers. Right. And when they shifted to full um, remote, then they saw these decreases in productivity. Now, I can go back to my call center days. Like, and I, yeah. you, especially if it's a tech support call center, customer service thing, you would do whatever you could to not take the phone calls. <laughs> Like, like if there was right. an, a company meeting, you were like, yes. You, now the sales teams, those guys are different because they're like every second they're not on the phones, they're missing commissions and sales. Right. But so I could definitely see if you were at home, if you you'd maximize any chance not to stay logged in and getting the active call. I, I could or, or I could or taking a little longer to do your 
documentation. I could, I see how that could happen. And then, but they also stated from a, there was a IT company in India and they said what happened with that is employees were, had the same productivity, but they're working more hours. Hence, they sh essentially that means they're 18% less productive. So it's it's mixed, right? Because to right. some extent, like, why are they working these more hours if they could get away with slacking if you're remote, right? Right, because we know that's true, right? Nobody's disputing that remote workers, people who work from home, work more hours because they don't have the commute. And so you just get your coffee and you, instead of driving at eight and starting work at nine, you start work at eight at your desk, you right? Plug. Yep. Yeah, so that has been shown. And I, don't, I haven't seen any evidence to the contrary. I'm curious about these studies of the call center workers and the IT workers because I feel like it's got to be different for different types of work. Like Brian said here in the live chat, it depends how you look at it, what industry and what the employee is doing. It really depends what you're doing as to whether or not you're going to be more productive. And for call center workers, I feel like the camaraderie of being in the call center together and taking those calls and then having somebody to turn to if a call goes bad is really important oh, and yeah. doing that at home. <laughs> yeah, but, but you imagine a call center. <laughs> Have you worked in a call center, Blake? <laughs> well, no, I haven't worked in a support. Well, okay, no, it, at Flowcast, I the marketing team was sort of like in between customer support and okay. sales. And we had a boiler room where we yeah, had- Yeah, so it's more like a boiler room or a sweatshop. It's definitely, yeah. and this is why it's so predictive. It's like you're under the, yeah. don't take but, six minutes to walk to the bathroom, like that kind of- Right, Got but it. if you had to be in that sales pod by yourself at home doing sales calls, like I couldn't do that. I'd need like the people around me also doing it. It's sort of like the reason people run in a in a group or they bike in a Peloton is yeah. because everyone else inspires you to keep going and to not stop. And if you do it yourself, you're going to stop. Yeah. So, I feel like certain jobs you can't you can't extrapolate to all jobs. And to bring it to accounting, one of the reasons I think remote work has been so great for accounting is that so much of what we do is focus work that is really hurt by distractions in the office. Yeah. If you're and, working on that spreadsheet or that return, you really need to focus. And if people are walking in your office all day long asking you questions, really hard to focus. And that's data they have. So those, those people in that sweet spot that are 30 and 40 years old, like you don't need that career mentoring that you used to have, right? And for you... If nobody's interrupting you because they have questions, you're going to be more productive. So, so 30, 40-year-olds working from home who have now avoided mentoring their younger counterparts yeah. are super are way more productive, right? Like that's right. kind of it. They're ignoring the rest of the, the team, if you want to call it that. Yeah. Um, and so what they're really seeing is people that value it, those early age, so the 20-somethings, they want the socialization. They want to be- the learning. Um, they want the learning. They want the mentoring. And then- and, Plus, it's very difficult for many of them to work at home. They have six roommates, and, like, you can't work. So they, 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 they want to go to the office. Then you have the 50- and 6-year-olds that, like, they just don't want to break their old habits. They've gone to the office their whole life. Like, why do they want to work at home now? Yeah. Um, and then the, also the 30- and 40-year-olds, you know, they at, at that age, you tend to have families, and you need that flexibility and schedule, right? Yeah. Oh, and, so David's school's starting, and yes. I'm the pickup from school. So yes. my work has to be done at 3 p.m. every day because I'm going to go get my kid from school I'm going to help him with his homework. I'm going to make sure he's successful and becomes a productive member of society, right? I couldn't do that if I went to an office no. I, I, or I'd have to have a You'd very have flexible, early. I'd have and to leave early. that you're leaving early. Yeah, and then I wouldn't get the promotion, right? Promotion. So, and then they're tying this back to education. So like employees with a high school degree or less, they only spend 18% of their days working at home, but those with a graduate degree do so for 37% of their days, more yeah. than double the amount. So it's really tied to that. And the reason why is most college graduate degrees holders tend to have computer-heavy based jobs, right? You can work with computers. <laughs> HK in the chat said, 30 to 40 is here. I need to go to the office so I can close a door and ignore my family at home. LOL. Yeah, <laughs> I feel you. That's how I feel my week was this week. <laughs> the last I week I feel of you summer. on that one. The yeah. So, so it's highly contextual, right? It depends on what is your living situation? What is your family situation? What is your job function? Po probably you personally, how you work, you know, are you more productive when you're around other people or not? And so like, it's impossible to generalize and say remote work is, is better or worse. It has to be on a case by case basis. And, and, and the one that's why part it pisses of... me off when like you got Jamie Dimon <laughs> yeah. from Chase Bank saying like, we need to get everyone back in the office because you can't collaborate. 
remotely. And I'm like, this is a guy who like never figured out how to use Zoom properly, you know? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> this last stat might piss you off. And, and, and this will kind of transition maybe to talking about the, the hiring crisis, right? So what they're saying is if people that work from home, they value it. So high age earners value this. And they um, think about the ability to work at home two or three days a week is like an 8% pay increase. Yeah. Right. And so the high earners really value that. That, but people that are um, below fifty thousand dollars a year, they don't think that way at all. Like this is not like, oh, this is in lieu of some some earnings. But what I hate about this is this is the type of data that get well skewed by accounting firms as an excuse to pay people less. Well, you're working at home, so I get to pay you eight percent less. Oh yeah, like, big like, mistake. Like that, that's the next step to this. When I think I think you probably talked about the articles. I read some of it. You know, they want there's all this reasons to increase the wages right? Because yeah. nobody can hire. And I'll kind of hand off to you on that because that's all I really have on the productivity research stuff. This episode of the Accounting Podcast is sponsored by LiveFlow. If you're really a busybody, your title would read CPB, a certified public busybody. You're a CFO, a controller, a CPA, and yet you burn so much time on the busy work compiling reports stuck in the land of CPB. Well, LiveFlow's mission is to get you out of there. It's the fastest way to connect your QuickBooks Online to Google Sheets. It's designed to eliminate your extra busy work by automating and scaling your client reporting with live hourly updates. Once you cross the border, some strange and wonderful things start to happen. You stop exporting reports from QBO. You no longer customize your sheets over and over again. Your central nervous system forgets what it feels like to deal with stale data and you enter a state of nirvana. For your one-way ticket out of CPB land and 20% off your first three months, head over to accountingpodcast.promo slash liveflow. That is accountingpodcast.promo forward slash L-I-V-E-F-L-O-W. Welcome back to CPA land. Well, so I saw an article in Fortune on this topic, a survey from, I guess, a series of reports it's summarizing a series of reports from Greenhouse, the Federal Reserve, and Unispace. And Unispace found that 42% of companies with return to office mandates, 42%, experienced higher than expected employee attrition. And 29% struggled with recruitment. So there is a cost. There is a very real cost in terms of recruiting and retention if you do not allow people to work from home at least some of the time. 76%. Okay, we're talking... Three out of four employees would leave. They would consider leaving if flexible work schedules were eliminated. And underrepresented groups are 22% more likely to leave. So your diversity will also be hurt. And they had the similar information about the uh, pay cut. If you make people go back to the office, it's equivalent to, they said equivalent to a 2 to 3% pay cut. So, it, and that's not like, I mean, that's not a lot, but that's meaningful. Like, and think about it. So if, if I perceive you making me go back to work, David, as a 2 to 3% pay cut, that's like, I didn't get my salary increase this year. Now I'm going to go look for another job. You know, it's that kind of feeling. Yeah. Because yeah, in a way, going into the office costs you a little more. You know, well, you're, you go to lunch with a coworker, you're, you're spending ga yeah. gasoline money. Yeah, you have some real cost doing that. And I think it's unfair for, you know, firm owners and CEOs to say, you all need to come back to the office. You all need to bear these costs that I'm not going to pay you for. I'm not going to pay you more to come to the office. And you're going to bear all of these, you know, external costs. Like, and how many of these CEOs and partners have to actually be the primary caretaker for their children or have young children or can't afford to live close to the office? So I feel like that's why guys like Jamie Dimon just see remote work as a negative, because it is for him, it's a negative, right? He wants to have all his people there so you can just walk over to them and tap them on the shoulder and tell them what he wants them to do. But that person might have spent an hour and a half to get to the headquarters in New York City yeah, from the house they could actually afford. Yeah, yeah it's, it's, it's a, I think everybody's going to figure out it differently. And I think the hybrid roach is the way to go or team building activities with, hey, we all agree on Fridays, nobody's going to get on a Zoom call with each other and we're just going to be heads down and work. But, but that's hard because if you're the younger person that doesn't that still needs that support. And, and I, one concept I think that's not in here that I th always find interesting is peer-to-peer, like, 
it's in the engineering world. There's like peer-to-peer programming. So you and I would get on a call like this and we'd be working together. Maybe I'd be typing out the code, but you'd be watching me. And then we're yeah. interacting and it's like hyper-productivity when two engineers work together like that and dual programming together. Yeah. And you and I have sessions like that where we'll get on a call sometimes, just do something together because sometimes it's hard to ever, for it to ever get done. But at the same time, that is also hard to do. Like if you have a whole team of employees, like I can't be on a Zoom call doing that that type of clip with everybody. So yeah. I don't know. Well, and, and we're feeling the pain, I am anyway, this week because we hired a new marketer at Earmark and I'm working to onboard her. And if she was in the office, it would be so easy for me just when I have a break, go over and get her on the next thing. But I'm not, we're not in the office. We're totally virtual, right? So for me to keep this ball moving is a lot harder than it would be if I was in the office. But yeah, then, it's nice when somebody's next to you and they you like, how's this looking? They just turn the monitor at you and you can give them two seconds of feedback and then get back yeah. to working again. And, and yeah. that's a, that's more of a 15, 20-minute process when you're remote. And that that's where it starts to add up, right? Is this that new employee stuff? Yeah. Luke is interested in how the metaverse will affect work from home. That could be a game changer. I actually, you know, despite how much I like to make fun of Zuckerberg and the metaverse and all that crap, I do think that long-term... Once we figure out the tech, it will be because you could have that side-by-side sort of feel if it's done right while you're at your home office with those VR goggles that Apple's building, all that. But I feel like it's far away. It, you know, a lot farther away than generative AI is anyway. So. I don't know. But what's the point of life if like, I, I mean, because really, I, I, and this is maybe another way to think about this study and then we can, like, last night I went to the kids' open house, I think I told you that, and actually saw people. And I feel like this is the first year we're kind of out of COVID now. And it felt like there was a sense of community. You're seeing parents and you're, you're, people are saying hi to each other in the hallways. And and I feel like that was there when my kids were in K through five or K through six. But then I feel like this whole junior high and first couple of years of high school, it got lost. And because everybody's remote, nobody's really interacting. And so there could be a long-term effects of this that we don't even know about that could affect companies if you never actually see each other and go in. Yeah, Jamie Dimon, you know, I, I mentioned that. Um, he was talking about this a couple weeks ago. And I found the quote. He said, quote, I don't know how you can be a leader and not be completely accessible to your people. That was his criticism of managers at Chase who don't want to come into the office. And I think it comes from that old mindset where in order to be accessible, you got to have the door open in your office. But there's ways to be accessible to people on chat, on Zoom, on Teams. Give them your cell phone. <laughs> you can still take phone calls at the golf course. <laughs> I'm on Google Chat a lot because I don't want the team waiting on me for answers. So I, I'm, I'm pretty much like available on it 12 hours a day. I'm not working 12 hours a day, though. Right. Because I'm just checking yeah. in like and I'll do it from the gym too. like I see a question pop up. And for me, it's worth it to like some people wouldn't want that. They want to just turn off when they leave the office. But for me, having a global team that's all over the world, which we do with 12 hour time differences, I need to be accessible 12 hours a day. So I would say that Jamie Dimon, excuse me, Mr. President of Chase or big shot bank CEO, you can be accessible. And be virtual. And I love how HK, uh, HK Geek in the chat actually said it really well. Like, it just takes more planning and intention. Yes. Like, that's the way to kind of go about this. I agree. And the good news is remote work is sticking, right? Uh, it's not going away. Most of us can work hybrid now, like in the knowledge worker space in accounting firms. I'm hearing that, you know, plenty of firms may be having people come back to the office, but a lot are are letting it stick. So it's exciting. This episode of The Accounting Podcast is sponsored by Zoho. Many times when working with clients, you'll find that they are already using apps to run their front of the house day-to-day operations, but need your help picking apps to solve their back office needs. Zoho Finance Plus has all the tools you need to streamline all of your clients' back office operations. Those apps include Zoho Invoice, Zoho Books, Zoho Inventory, Zoho Subscriptions, Zoho Expense, and Zoho Checkout. Zoho Finance Plus is a unified platform in which all the apps work seamlessly together and can be easily managed with one single administrative console that allows you to manage departments, roles, and user access and permissions in different apps. Zoho also has a partner program for accountants, bookkeepers, and consultants. 
As a Zoho advisor, you can list your firm on Zoho's partner directory, leading to discovery by Zoho's over 85 million customers. Zoho advisors also get a dedicated partner account manager, early access to product releases, in-depth product training, certifications, and more. If you want to learn about becoming a Zoho advisor, head over to accountingpodcast.promo slash Zoho. That is accountingpodcast.promo forward slash Z-O-H-O. David, you mentioned that you had more AI stories. Really, just we also, kind of oh, one AI study I, story, but one. Well, and you mentioned that one um, percent article. I want to talk about that. That that I think is next. That that's kind of okay. a big deal. This headline caught my attention. We're always talking about the talent crisis here on the accounting podcast, so we love a headline like this. Less than one percent of accounting firms can find enough staff. This is on Accounting Today. This is a survey of 250 top CPA firm leaders in the U.S. Less than 1% of respondents are able to find the staff they need domestically, leading to strategies such as hiring workers abroad, raising starting salaries, offering fully remote jobs, and hiring staff without college degrees. The survey also revealed that 27% of CPA firm leaders reported that former staff moved to other industries for higher pay. That was the number that I, I, I pulled out and highlighted as well. Yeah. So less than 1%, you know, actually that reminds me of the movie I saw last night. I saw Oppenheimer and there's a, there's a famous scene in the movie where, uh, Oppenheimer, am I going to, am I going to get in trouble for another spoiler on this episode? I, I mean, that's a three but, and a half hour movie. You, okay. You're going to give us a set. You're going to, you're barely giving us any of it, right? So this is a famous like story about Oppenheimer, right? Okay. okay. So, so I'm not ruining, I can't ruin anything because this is a historical event. Historical okay? fact. So, okay. but if you don't want to know a historical fact, that's going to be in a fictional r- movie about a historical time, then t- stop listening for the next minute. So there's, you know, this anecdote, Oppenheimer and his team, you know, they they want they were doing the math on like what will, what would happen in like with an atomic bomb if you set off an atomic bomb, and um, they were worried that like there could be this uncontrolled chain reaction that would uh, if it happened if it was uncontrolled and never stopped it would ignite the atmosphere and destroy the world. So they finally did the math and they figured out that there was a close to zero chance of that happening, but they couldn't they couldn't say it was zero. So, going back to the story, there's a close to zero chance that there's some accounting firm owner out there, CPA firm leader that was able to staff. I guess that means there's like one or two out of the 250. I I think one thing to keep in mind with this survey, though, the survey was done by Alliant Talent, who, um, and you said that word domestically. So so it was about hiring in the U.S. Right. And Alliant Talent's really their, 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 their stick is helping you spin up an office in India. That's that's <laughs> kind of their business model. So just keep it that keep track of who's doing the survey or why they're doing the survey a little oh. bit. But the other quotes were amazing. So the CEO Jim Brady, so he CEO of of Alliant Talent. Uh-huh. So and he's been around. He was uh he was at Deloitte. He was at Grant Thornton. Um, actually, if you bring up his LinkedIn page, it's cr- really crazy. So he chief executive officer at Alliant Talent, chief operating officer at Grant Thornton, partner at Deloitte. Right, so he's mm-hmm. so he is arguably in the know, I would say maybe right or or, or part of the establishment. If maybe that's the way to think about him, right? Yep. But he goes on to say in that article that he blames rules like the 150 hour requirement for CPA licensure as one factor that might need to change to attract more young people to join the profession. Like, like, like yeah. he's a leader of a firm, and these words are coming out of his mouth, and like it doesn't old surprise school me. Leader, yeah. Like I say. I wish AICPA would do a survey because they have the best database, but they won't, they haven't done a survey on this, but I wish they would. I, I believe that 80% of the profession opposes the 150 hour rule. Yeah. And, and it sounds like he listens to our show. <laughs> I'll read this, the rest of his <laughs> quote. In many states, the extra 30 hours is not even mandatory to be in accounting, auditing, or tax, says Brady. It's a little bit of a barrier to pay an extra 50000 60000 70000 to get that fifth year, especially if it's not even deep accounting or auditing professional curriculum. The 150-hour rule is not great for enhancing the profession and increasing the numbers. Yep. Like, it's not just us saying this. It, this, is, this, this is an established guy. And then going back to the whole 
online talent. His expert, he's, he actually spun up some early stuff um, in India. Like he was one of the first people to spin up any offices in mm. India. So, well, he had extensive Big Four experience. So let's talk about the Big Four. EY, a staff person in uh, Australia at EY died in the Sydney office last year. Do you remember that? We talked about that on the show. Yep. It was overwork. Well, EY Oceania, Oceania, EY Oceania commissioned an independent review of its workplace culture following the death of that staff member. The review found that a majority of employees feel safe and respected in the workplace, but a significant minority reported experiencing exclusion, bullying, sexual harassment, and racism. Long working hours and overwork were identified as critical issues, negatively impacting employee well-being, team cohesion, and retention. Nearly half of the respondents reported that their health had been negatively affected. Nearly half. And 40% continued, considered quitting. 40% considered quitting as a result. While there is confidence in addressing issues of harassment and discrimination, only 31% of employees believe the firm can address the culture of long work hours. So, so the staff don't think that the work hours can change. Because they're in the weeds of it, which goes back to... So, so, so I got to dig into this, right? There's a minority at EY Australia or Oceania that feel that like there's a problem with bullying and stuff like that, right? So 74% said they rarely feel excluded in the workplace, but that means that 26% like feel excluded on a regular basis. Like more yeah, than rarely. Like what, were right? the, what, what are the other buckets? Do people just opt out to, to answer the question? It's kind of a... So in the last five years, 15% have experienced bullying, 10% indicated they'd experienced sexual harassment, and 8% experienced racism. Like that's not... Uh, that's it's 2023, folks. That's a yeah. lot of... Those are big numbers, yeah. right? Like that's a lot of people. In the long hours... That's the thing that everybody has experienced with 46 saying that their health has been negatively affected. And I think personally, having gone like myself from working long hours and not taking care of my health when I had my own firm and when I worked at the big firm to having a flexible schedule where I could work less, where I could work out every day, it has made my life so much better. My health is so much better when I do not work more than eight hours a day and when I take care of myself and I see my family. And I think that's the best argument to reduce overwork in our profession is that it actually has like a significant health consequence and it's not short term. It has a long term effect on you, especially after years and years, you get into the habit of it and then you, you sort of like lose this ability to live a healthy life because you become addicted to the work. You can't fit in an exercise or whatever. Yeah, I get it. I mean, I think like some people say, oh, this is just the way accounting is. This is the nature of the job. And I would say like that, well, saying that is like saying that if you're a dock worker, the nature of the job is that you're going to get crushed by a shipping container. You know, like that's not acceptable, right? We have to do something to make it safe. Yeah. Um, or it's like, yeah, it's sort of just like accepting this unacceptable situation. And if you want to increase retention and recruitment, right, you got to make healthy workplaces. Yeah, it goes, I mean, that goes back to, like you said, start badging firms for giving good working conditions, right? Or committing to less hours. No, or just um, have overtime, pay everyone overtime, right? Why, why are staff accountants exempt from overtime? Just because you sit behind a desk doesn't mean that working 10 or 12 hours a day isn't bad for you. We have overtime protections for factory workers, but we don't have overtime protections for staff accountants. And they could frame it as a raise. Like, hey, I'm going to let you work less hours. That's like getting a raise. <laughs> or or when you work more hours, you actually get paid for those paid hours. hours. Right? It's not free labor for the firms. Maybe that's why accounting firms have been able to double their fees but keep staff salaries the same because you can work people over 40 hours and you don't have to pay them anymore. Megan says your part-time controller pays overtime. That's true. They pay overtime, and they are one of the fastest-growing accounting firms in the country. They rocketed from 99 
to 75 on the top 100 accounting firms list. People want to work there. I wonder why. Maybe it's because they have good working hours and you can work 20 hours, you can work 30 hours, you can work 40 hours, and you get paid for overtime if you want to work more than that. Hmm. It's like so mind-blowing. You know, how hard is it to create a good culture in your firm? Maybe just set up the incentives properly. This episode of The Accounting Podcast is sponsored by the South Carolina Association of CPAs, SCA CPA. As a listener of this podcast, Blake and I consider you part of the accounting podcast community. Sure, it might get you a shirt, stickers, free beer now and then, but wouldn't it be great if you could have a steadfast advocate, boost your career, get leadership growth opportunities, learn from a community of peers, build in-person relationships, or just enjoy lifelong friendships? That's the power you get from engaging with a state CPA association like the South Carolina Association of CPAs. Your state CPA association is more than just a CPE provider. State CPA associations keep their fingers on the pulse of ever-changing business, regulatory, and legislative landscape to keep you in the loop and to protect the CPA profession, which in the end protects your livelihood. Whether you're just starting your career or climbing the corporate ladder, joining your state CPA association can be life-changing. And best of all, there's a CPA association in your state. If you're ready to find out why CPA Association membership is for you, head over to accountingpodcast.promo slash S-C-A-C-P-A. That is accountingpodcast.promo forward slash S-C-A-C-P-A. We could talk about how I saw a headline. Actually, I'll, I'll go with the headline first and then work backwards from there. So the headline, this was in The Verge, and it said, IRS will finally let most Americans file taxes online next year. Yes. And I was like, what is this? And no, it has nothing to do with like real filing online filing. Okay. So, so the real article is a different article. Uh, this is, again, well, the, it, people they got like the headline to frame wrong. the IRS in weird ways. They got, they, they got the headline wrong. The, the, the real story is IRS is going paperless. Exactly. It's going paperless. Yeah. And to... Then they have a real, this sounds like a real deal plan with real deadlines now, like end of 2024, end of 2025, end of 2026, like where things are going to be. The only thing that worries me is like looking at a lot of these numbers. Um, the, the IRS is estimating that 94% of individual taxpayers will no longer need to send mail. Except for it says, however, taxpayers who wish to submit paper returns and correspondence continue to do so. Hence, we live in a country where there's still billions and trillions of dollars running around on paper checks. You have the right. option to not use them and people use them all the time. Like, well, like okay. that's going to be the shame here, I think. I do like that they're keeping the option of letting people file on paper. And the reason is that Americans hate to be forced to do anything. Okay? Yes. This is the culture. So you yeah. have to understand that. And this is what, this is why, you know, COVID mandates and mass mandates and vaccines failed because nobody in America wants to be told what to do. Okay, so you got to give people the option and encourage them to do it and make it easier and better. And so, like, I I think I think Yellen's doing great with that, right? Because this was uh, Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen who yep. uh, said this, right? And they're going to go paperless by 2025. That's the goal, the 2025 tax season. So in 2026, you should be able to do everything paperless. That's going to be great because there's still so many forms you have to file on paper, and that's the problem for tax shops and firms is like you got to have an office because you got to be able to like send out this paper mail and get it back and all that you might be able to truly go paperless i've had to file returns paper because i missed the electronic filing deadline which is silly they just turn the computer off and then i had to print it and mail it it doesn't make any sense um but she has a nice quote though she says by filing season 2025 the irs is committing to digitally process 100 percent of tax information and returns that are submitted by by paper as well as half of all paper correspondence, non-tax forms, and notices will also be digitized. So does this mean the IRS is still going to mail correspondence? Or are they going to somehow do that digitally too? Will it all be through a portal? Because that would be amazing. So so, they, they, so they talk about by filing season 2026... Everything's going to be processed digitally. Up to 1 billion historical documents will be digitized, giving taxpayers access to their data and saving the agency about $40 million in storage costs a year. That's amazing. $40 million to store paper every year? Paper every year. So, like, I, I'm curious, like, does this mean, like, correspondence will be online? Uh, because, like, right, if they're going to go paperless, they have to do that. All those notices that get mailed out to people, they got to have a I, way to send those on a portal or via, like, secure email or something. 
or an app. So we were at the NAEA conference this week, right? And the IRS was there. The, well, and I would call it the IRS, lack of better, an innovation team of the IRS. And they had this little mobile app. And the way this mobile app would work is it's kind of like a souped up FAQ app. So I could take my 1040, I could take a photo of it, and then it scans whatever doc I'm looking at and it provides help files on every line of that form. So I can click on it and in theory, it's going to bring me up. Now it doesn't do chat. It doesn't pull up my records yet, but like they're building a beautiful, easy way to interact with the IRS is kind of the way I could summarize that. It's not ready for beta testers. They wouldn't let me take a photo of it or film it or anything like that. I asked, trust me. I was like, I would love to, to, to find out more about this, to see this. But so the IRS is on the march, right? They're on the march, which is good to see. Well, this is good. They're getting rid of the paper because there was also a story on accounting today about how the IRS is losing track of tax info during shipments between processing centers. Saw that too. The Treasury Inspector General for Tax Administration found the IRS is not adequately safeguarding sensitive tax information during shipping. The report highlighted that the IRS is not adhering to its own guidelines when sending large volumes of taxpayer information through private delivery carriers. Inspections found that a significant number of packages did not include the required tracking documents. And the IRS is not completing the necessary audits of the acknowledgement process for these shipments. And TIGTA made recommendations, as they like to do. They always make lots of recommendations. Did I, you see the form? Like, they're supposed to fill out, it's very clear, you need to fill out Form 3210. And so I, I, I Googled it and found that form. And it reminds me of, well, were you old enough or young enough or old? I guess, were you old enough, Blake, where there was a thing called inner office mail, kind of before email? So I'm... I, I joined, well, you know, I'm a career changer, right? So maybe yes. this was well, like when I was out of college, but I was a musician at that time. So I, um, I've seen the old like uh, f- folders, but I've never yeah, used and, it. And you, you cross off the line and then yeah. who it's going to the next person. The form kind of looks like that. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> I was like, why is it so hard to fill this out? That It's not that difficult. I just think people aren't using it. I don't know. Uh, let's see what else is new. Hunter Biden, the plea deal, the plea agreement was made public after a judge ordered it unsealed. Uh, it details Biden's earnings in 2017 and 2018 during which he failed to pay income tax. And the reason I'm bringing this up, David, is because you asked questions about this. You wanted to know where did this income come from? What was the source of it? Right? Was yeah. it W-2 income? Was it not? Well, it was not. Uh, it was, let's see, in 2017, he made $2.3 million. $1 million came from a company he formed with the chief executive officer of a Chinese conglomerate, 664000 from a Chinese infrastructure investment firm, 500000 from a Ukrainian energy company, 70000 <laughs> from a Romanian business, 48000 from an international law firm, and 666000 from domestic business interests. So it was all non W-2 income there. Jeez. He made more than $2.1 million in 2018. It doesn't say in the article where that money came from, but I'm going to guess probably like the same sources, right? Why would it change? Yeah. And and this is interesting too. So he owed, you know, a million dollars or he owed, how much did he owe in tax? Like a million dollars, right? A year? But... Oh, yes. Here, here's how he solved it. Hollywood entertainment lawyer Kevin Morris lent more than $2 million to Biden to help resolve his tax issues. So he got a loan and paid off the IRS. We need better friends. That's like... I know, right? That's kind of amazing. Yeah, his tax liabilities for each year were almost a million dollars per year. And it said paid for by an unidentified third party. But I guess the New York Times has identified that third party as this lawyer, Kevin Morris. So I... Th- I think if you want to talk about some quick numbers in criminal type activities, um, this caught my eye first. The man was charged with cheating Home Depots out of $300,000 in a door return scam. And essentially all he's doing is he's going, taking a cart, going to the back, putting doors on the cart, bringing it up to the returns counter and getting money. I'm like, how does a Fortune 500 company not have like any controls? I thought that was a little crazy. And I thought it was like, you know, There's like, a movie. Wow, There's a movie. There's a movie where the characters do this. They, they go into a hardware store and just take something off the shelf, something expensive, and take it to the customer service and return it because the store doesn't have a, you have to have a receipt policy. Yeah, I guess Home Depot apparently doesn't. Yeah. <laughs> just 
<laughs> but like how to, to get it up to three hundred thousand dollars? Like do you, that's a lot of inventory. How check? much is it's, how much is a door? Like a couple grand, right? Depends on which doors, but at a minimum, hundred dollars a piece, easily two hundred yeah. one fifty. So, uh, I mean, he must have been uh, doing the expensive doors, is what I'm guessing, right? Like the really uh, expensive ones. So what he had to do this like a thousand times to get caught. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And then, uh, the, but then I was like, oh, that's nothing because uh, did you see the article about the New Jersey uh, tax preparer? No. So tax preparer arrested for seeking over 124 million in phony tax credits. 124 million. Yeah. So the Department of Justice announced the arrest of Leon Haynes of Teaneck. New Jersey. According to court documents, beginning around November 2020, he prepared and filed 941s claiming pandemic-related clients, clients, you know, it's ERTC-type fraud. Yeah. Um, more than a half dozen of the clients have confirmed to the government that he just wrote the numbers and wages down. They didn't even look at it, basically. Wow. They didn't provide any of the information to him. So in the end, so he uh, filed 1,300 false claims, totaling $124 million. His own company, he got he got a check for a million for his own company, which was fraud, and then about thirty-one million was actually sent out to other to his clients. So okay, like so this is like a the top. ridiculous example, but we know that ERTC fraud and pandemic relief fraud is like prevalent, right? There's a lot yep. of it, and I keep seeing stories about how the IRS is going to crack down on this. AICPA is making recommendations, but how are they actually going to do it? The whole program relies on self-certification. So all you have to do is fill out these forms and say that you had this situation, right? And they can't possibly audit all of these. So yeah, a guy is going to get caught for $124 million, but what about the guy who just did $2.4 million? Probably never going to get caught, right? I mean, I, I don't see how you how they plug the gap in this. It's just going to be a massive... Going down the, the ladder. Yeah, massive hole of money that's just going to keep, you know, money's going to keep going into this fraud hole. Yeah, right, maybe got, this is just a big PR play, right? By the, the IRS commissioner, right? Uh, okay, we're talking about fraud. Here's a story I've been saving for you. The South China Morning Post reported an accountant in China stole the equivalent of 677,000 US dollars from her company, her employer, to pay for religious rights in an attempt to keep her boyfriend. So that was the motivation of the fraud triangle. Like, yeah. that, so what's she, the how? Like, she, how did she do this? She embezzled the $677,000, the equivalent of that, and used them to use the money to pay for Thai black magic religious rights gurus to help her problematic love life. She should use the money to connect with a clairvoyant that would have helped her avoid getting caught. I don't know. Wang began, Wang, the bookkeeper's last name is Wang. She began to divert the company's money in March of 2018. It doesn't say how. I wish they would say how. I always want to know how. Probably something stupid, right? Like the company was allowing her to print checks without a signature or something, right? It's, it's always something stupid like that. I got a good one to close us out, David. All right. Well, and we got some listener mail, so we'll get to that too. Um, but okay. I wanted to highlight this. So... Um, this story popped up. It's from thedispatch.com. Walter Fulp III, a native of Lexington, North Carolina, was recently inducted into the North Carolina Water Ski Hall of Fame. Fulp developed a love for water skiing during his high school years and continued to pursue the sport throughout college and beyond. He became an accomplished skier and judge, holding various positions in water skiing competitions. Fulp's highlight in the sport was placing sixth in the World Water Ski Championship in 2016, but his competition days were cut short due to a back injury in 2017, but remains very involved in the sport. So there are accountants, David, with hobbies. You know, we need to be, we need to be promoting these stories more to get people into the profession. You know, if you can be a world champion water skier and be an accountant, that means you've got work-life balance, right? Well, and, and water skiing's cool. Fonzie did the water ski. Remember the whole jump the shark? Fonzie really did the stunt in those days. He really jumped the shark because he actually water skied. Right? <laughs> so it's so it's so arguably it's the coolest accountant that exists. You know, he, he's like Fonzie. So you want to do a uh, do a voicemails? I got some listener mail. Some, uh, so okay. these were on social. Uh, William messaged me on LinkedIn and said regarding the one hundred and fifty hour rule. 
Have you heard of modernstates.org? This is a way that he cut a whole year from college with CLEP credits. He's maxing out the amount of CLEP credits his university will accept. He says, I don't know of a better way to save time and money and get the 150 credit requirement than CLEP exams. And if the exam and the exam proctor fee is free, it might be worth sharing with your po- if your podcast listeners are students. So if you are a student and you're looking to get the 150 uh, without spending a lot of money, go check out modernstates.org. And so it's a way to like test out of classes and get credit. I, I'm not sure. Can you explain like, exactly what this acronym is or what this means? Yeah. So it was created with the goal of making college more accessible and affordable for high school students by reducing the number of credits you need to get a bachelor's degree. But it also works for the 150 because the extra 30 hours of college semester hours can be in anything. So basically you, you test out of college courses by taking exams. They're the CLEP exams. It stands for college level examination program. And they're administered by the college board and accepted for credit by more than 2,900 colleges and universities. So yeah, you can test out. There's 32 courses available, no prerequisites required. So if you're a good test taker, I mean, this could be a great way to get your 30 hours, assuming that your college that you go to accepts these for credit. Or assuming, in theory, your argument, which is, I have five years of work experience, and that proves... I should be able to take these tests. I mean, not not that real world experience ever means anything to a college class test, but in yeah. theory, in no, theory, so, you know, I'm looking at the course catalog. They've got American government, literature, biology, calculus, chemistry, composition, college algebra, financial accounting is in there, French, English, German, history of the United States, humanities, all sorts of classes. Uh, you could take Western civilization too. 1648 to the present and get your credits you need for your 150. This is great. This week I had a a phone call with the founder of um, cpacredits.com or cpacredits.com and essentially they figured out their self-study or self-paced classes. It's like they have 12 semesters so they do a new semester, new class each month and it's like, so you can knock your thing out faster for fractions of the cost to get your the extra classes you need. So you're right between, there's alternative ways to get you to that, to that finish line. We got one more listener message. This is from Eddie on Instagram. Eddie said, hello, I've been listening to your great content on YouTube. I have a question I'm hoping you can answer. I've been in industry accounting for the last 10 years. I've been pondering about the CPA license lately, but with being 36, is it worth it at my age? I would greatly appreciate your thoughts on this. I've thoroughly enjoyed your podcast. Thanks. And I replied and I said, could you tell me more about your career goals? Because that will really determine whether or not getting the CPA is worth it for you. And Eddie said, I aspire to become a corporate controller and eventually a CFO someday. I've been an accounting supervisor and I'm currently a senior accountant. So I said, you don't need the CPA to be a CFO. Most CFOs don't have a CPA these days. But I said, if you want to be a corporate controller, CPA is a mandatory requirement in a lot of roles, especially the bigger the company. And so if you want to move up from senior accountant to controller, it would definitely be something to consider. And I mean, just look at the way right now I'm staring at you and we are side by side heads here with our names on it. And you have the comma CPA. It just looks better. Like (laughs) visually, it just looks better. Like, like, yeah, like you, you want it, right? It's a badge. Yeah. And it means something. It really does. Um, so I, I would say if you, if you want to go to CFO through the accounting path, then that's it is important to do it. But you can get to CFO other ways. So don't feel like you have to go be a controller and then be a CFO. In fact, you, you could be, you know, to be honest, better served doing data analytics or doing operations, you know, figuring out how to use your love of numbers in a more operational way because a lot of a lot of controllership ends up being you know compliance related and ceos who are hiring cfos want people who are going to be their right hand 
and be able to operate and run the business and not just do financial reporting a lot of the time. Now, that's I'm saying that's broad strokes. There's a lot of different types of businesses, a lot of companies. So it's really going to be unique to your situation, what you decide to do. Another way to do it, to skip the CPA, would be to go work at startups because they don't care. You could do a controller role there and then become a CFO, right? Like, like um, the CFO of Crumble Cookies. He just worked his way up at a startup and became the CFO of Crumble Cookies. Doesn't have a CPA as far as I know. Yeah. All right, and David. started as an external bookkeeper. Yeah. yeah. It's, it's a great journey. I got a hard stop, so yep. I got to go. That's if people want to find you online, where can they track you down? I'm on all the socials, just at David Leary. And, and I am at Blake T. Oliver. Subscribe to us on YouTube and you'll get notified when we go live. You can join us and chat and let us know your thoughts. You can heckle us. Um, it's a lot of fun doing these recordings with everybody here. So thank you, HK, Megan, Luke. Thank you, Brian, Aaron, everyone who showed up. Ryan, everyone who showed up and especially who uh, commented. David, I'll see you next week. Beautiful. Bye. Bye. Time for the classifieds. Your accounting clients don't want another shiny app they have to log into. They want to be met where they live in their email inbox. FinDaily does just that. FinDaily automates the communication of key financial data by sending it to your client's inbox daily. Try FinDaily out for free at findaily.io. That's findaily.io. Sick of waiting for same-day ACH transfers that stick to bank hours or paying high fees for credit cards? Stop settling with slow payments and say hello to the future of AR with Forwardly, America's first accessible instant payment solution. With Forwardly, accountants in the USA can receive small business payments instantly, 24-7, 365 days a year, manage cash flow, and simplify accounting with automatic reconciliation. With generous partner rewards, ridiculously low fees, and no monthly charge, you can start thinking Forwardly at Forwardly.com. That's Forwardly.com. Want to get the word out about your newsletter, webinar, party, Facebook group, podcast, ebook, job posting, or that fancy Excel macro you just created? Why not let the listeners of the Cloud Accounting Podcast know by running a classified ad? Hit the show notes for the link to get more info.